Welcome to a rather different edition of the Weekend Sports Cars uh, podcast, part of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Network. No Marshall Pruitt this week, but uh, before we get into why, let's get into thanking, uh, as we usually do, Cooper Tyres, the Justice Brothers and RondaMotorsports.com for their continuing support for this endeavour. Why no Marshall? Marshall is in a darkened room, calming down after the month of May and an extraordinary Indy 500. I am utterly delighted, though, to be joined by, well, what can we say? Legend, um, genius, hero. None of those things would be appropriate. <laughs> no, Oliver Gavin, welcome to the Weekend Sports Guys, and thank you so much for filling what is a mighty hole left by uh, our friend and colleague, Marshall Pruitt. Well, it's absolutely fantastic to be here, Graham. And yes, it is, uh, you know, it's been, I'm sure. I'm sure Marshall is absolutely lying down in that darkened room uh, after such an exciting Indy 500. I mean, and, and, you know, Elio is, uh, you know, one of Marshall's favourites and an old mate of mine. And, And wow, to get four victories at the Indy 500, that is unbelievably special. Isn't it staggering? What, 46 years old? And also, because this is a sports car podcast, interestingly, unique uh, record now for both Elio and for Michael Shank Racing. What great uh, scenes with Mike Shank at the end yes. of that race. The yeah. only team and driver to have won uh, in the same year, the Rolex 24 Hours and the Indy 500. Just, just you know, you say about your history with Elio, how far back does that go? Well, I first raced Elio in 1995. Uh, we were very fresh-faced and, and young, competing in the uh, British Formula 3 Championship. And I think it was either the first or the second race. I think it was at Silverstone National Circuit. And uh, Elio was unbelievably quick. Uh, and he was. Uh, we were running at the front, but I, I, I seem to remember him cartwheeling out of the action at, at Beckett's corner on about the second or third lap while tussling with with someone just behind me and uh that was that was kind of like how I, I remembered that year with him you know he he was super quick um but if he just managed to uh, sort of keep it all together for a few more races he would have he would have, he would have won the championship because we actually went into the final race of the year at Thruxton tied on points wow and and uh, I, I managed to finish in front of him and his teammate Ralph Furman, who drove both drove for Paul Stewart Racing, and uh, and I was driving for Edenbridge Racing with with Vauxhall engines, and that was one of my first uh, sort of times driving for General Motors or General Motors uh, powered cars, and uh, and and yet yeah, won the championship and. And uh, yeah, 1995 um, w- was a fantastic year for me. But uh, yeah, that was my first year of, of competing against Elio. And then, oh, we've we've bumped into one another many, many, many times at, at racetracks. Um, I'm not sure we've actually really raced against one another that many times since that point. In the same we, class. Yeah, in the same class. Because we've always, he's either been, he's been in prototypes and I've been in GT or... I don't know. We just we've always and it always been you know doing all of his uh, fantastic work in IndyCar. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what an amazing achievement! Four times Indy 500 champion. I mean, that is something very very special. Fantastic stuff. Let's move on to some questions. So we, we've uh, we had two calls for questions this week. Uh, we teed up there was going to be a special guest presenter. A couple of people guessed it might just be you. <laughs> um, so actually a, a bumper bundle of questions for your good self. Some 
very serious, some quite, quite so serious. We're going to yeah. wade into those first because I know you've got some limited time uh, this evening for uh, recording this podcast. I'm going to go straight in with, in fact, there's one from Stephen Gate that actually says, Oliver, after narrowly missing out to Kelvin Burt in British F3 93, stepping back to the Championship in 95 was was big risk was it really win it or bust do you think you'd have got the 1996 opel gig if you hadn't won the title well it was a risk and um you know 93 was it was a great year uh, to compete in the british formula three championship kelvin was very quick and so was paul stewart racing and um you know one of one uh, of all the drivers i've sort of competed against in my career i'd say kelvin was one of the most naturally talented and and he had a a, a, a brilliant sort of racecraft and he's quite cool under pressure um but he he was very very laid back and um it just never quite clicked for kelvin after after that year really he did some british formula i think some british touring cars and, and some other stuff but it was uh, it was i finished second that year in 93 and so 95 to come back to the championship and, and go for the win was a big risk uh, but i believed in the in the team in edinburgh racing and and voxel power and um you know what uh, what we could all put together had a fantastic engineer in ian morgan and and great mechanics um there at, at edinburgh racing so you know i it was a tough season it was definitely an up and down year um but um, i think i might have just said you know we went into that final race at thruxton tied on points with ralph Furman and elio castro neves and um i came away uh, beating them both in in that race and and, and finishing third on the podium and, um, and and taking the title, which was at that time was a bit of a giant killing exercise because because Paul Stewart Racing were really the dominant force in British Formula Three at the time. Um, but we, we we managed to beat them and uh, yes, it did play a, a pretty big role in, in me getting the ninety the, the the Opel DTM ITC drive in 1996 with Yost, um, which was good and bad i met some great people in that championship and i really enjoyed driving those cars but it was uh it was a tough year and i was very fresh and green and not at all um clued up to the politics that that go with the very highest levels of motorsport and and i got an absolute schooling by some past <laughs> masters at it <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, moving on to the, I mean, the, the the heights of motorsport, we got we got a lot of questions about Corvette racing and sure. TT race exploits. But there's a couple of questions here, and I'm going to add one to it as well to do with F1. Stephen Gate asks quite a simple one. Stephen says, "Describe your F1 experience with Pacific GP in just three words." You might <laughs> want to put this into context about what actually happened for those that don't know. Well, I mean. Yeah, Pacific Grand Prix, uh, that was 94, 95, um, and I was their test driver, and we brought some sponsorship to the team, and it was part of the the whole sort of deal of me being their test driver was, uh, you know, to, to if there was an opportunity for me to race, uh, that I, I would get that opportunity, and um, I won the British Formula 3 Championship in 95, as I've said, and, and, and so the final race of the Formula One calendar in 1995 was um, in Adelaide. And um, I was, uh, after winning the British Formula Three Championship, you're eligible for a super license. And so the team asked me whether I could come go down to Adelaide and that I would, um, I would be in the car for that final race um, and I would be replacing Bertrand Gasho. And um, I 
jumped on the plane. I went down there uh, with Ian Dawson, the team manager, and Keith Wiggins was was sort of the team owner. And I got there and I met them all. And uh, you know, I had in, in, in interaction with everybody, uh, you know, at, at times through those previous two years. But I had only ever driven or tested the car once at Snetterton, and that was in 1994. And that was when the car was absolutely brand new. Um, and so I had no experience in the 95 car and I was going to Adelaide, a brand new racetrack, street circuit, never raced there before. So it was a tall order. Um, you know, looking back on it, it was a real tall order. But I got there, had a fitting in the car and I was going through the uh, all of the, the media stuff. And I had, a, I had an interview with Murray Walker and it was all real, just uh, sort of Dream stuff. Yeah. Pinching myself stuff. And um and then I'm sitting in the car for a sort of final fitting on the Thursday before we start running on the Friday. And um, the, the garage just empties. And uh, there's um, Keith Wiggins is at the back of the garage. And then there's Bertrand Gasho. And Bertrand was not due to be there. He, he was due to be – he would supposedly fallen off a jet ski and broken his leg. Or that was the story that the, t- the team were telling me. But he was walking around and he definitely had not broken his leg. And then Keith was looking rather sheepish at the back of the garage. And, and I jumped out of the car and, and went over to him and he said, Oliver, there's been a big problem. And um, we can't get your super license and you will not be driving this weekend. And so, yes, that was utterly gutting and disappointing and, and uh, you know, frustrating. But it was another another lesson in in the politics and the money that's involved in in yeah. in every form of racing. And uh, you know, I was a very very small fish in a very large pond. And um, I, yeah, that was a that was as I I wrote down here, it was a bridge too far. Um, that was <laughs> probably the, the, the three words that I would say for, for bridge too far. There you go. Well, that's that's your answer. Well, I mean. I must admit, I learned a lot about your the career I didn't know about, if you like. We, we had spent our time out in the Age of Le Mans series in the Gulf about your time. I did know about the, your time as a safety car driver and, and the lessons learned there and the people you met there. Yeah. But more than that, this extraordinary lengthy time you had with uh, as a test driver um, in Formula One, which I think is a tale not often told i mean just just briefly that was a decade of test driving in formula one yes i mean i i went from 97 uh testing for benetton at silverstone uh that was the week after i'd come back from the suzuka grand prix driving the safety car and i got called up by um the nigel clyde a good friend of mine who was who was an engineer a test team engineer there at benetton at the time in 97 and uh, I, i'm the same size and, and and height as alexander verts and alexander was was the test driver at benetton at the time well he was still out in 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 asia doing but some just say, by, by the way for our listeners both freakishly tall I should yes say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah for racing drivers we are rather tall and 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 so um um you know nigel said just just come come down to, to Silverstone we just need the car driving around uh, for 10 laps uh, we've got FedEx as a, as a new sponsor we, we, we've got it on the side pods we need to just show the car being driven around so that w- we can just give them an, an illustration of how it looked for for 1998 so I said okay fantastic so I turn up to Silverstone early that next morning and I jump in the car the seat fits perfect it's raining um, which is most probably a good thing because it then, you know, saves my neck a little bit because I hadn't 
done anything like that for for, for quite some time in terms of uh, neck work because uh, Formula One cars, you know, still are ex- extremely quick and, and and hard on the upper body. But I go out and I do do the ten laps and I come back in and Nigel goes, yeah, you're doing pretty good. We'll send you out for another ten. And then it turned into the whole day. And then they asked me back the next day. And I then from then onwards, I tested off and on for Benetton and then Renault all the way through until 2006. Wow. And that was start work, aero work, uh, shakedowns, you name it. I did it. If they needed somebody to drive a car, they just picked up the phone. And uh, yeah, I, I spent an awful lot of time at Santa Pod, which is a, a drag strip, just not only a most probably 15 minutes away from my house here. <laughs> so it was crazy. Well, it le- le- leads on to the final question we got about Formula One, which is from the uh, Twitter handle Yeldi Autosport, a uh, man that uh, bemoans the, uh, the current state, I think it's fair to say, of that fabulous title. Uh, do you have any regrets regarding F1? Uh, there were opportunities. I mean, where... where now at this stage of your career, having done what you've done with amazing achievement, is that a regret? Formula One, um, most probably not. You know, I've I've I looked back on some of the drivers that have have um, I, I raced with. Um, you know, whether it was Jan or Olivier or I raced against you know Giancarlo Fisichella and many many others who 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 have been through Formula One and differing levels of of success. And, uh, you know, I'd, I, I think that they all seem to have just as much or more fun in sports car racing than, than they ever did in Formula One. And, you know, I, I look at Jan and, 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 and it was very, very tough on him those years that he did. And, um, you know, I think he came away from that, you know, quite, I don't know, let's say scarred by it. And, um you know, he seemed to to just fit the mould of, of sports car race, racing way more. And I think most probably my character and temperament fitted sports car racing way, way better as well. And you have to be, to be successful in, in Formula One, you've got to be absolutely ruthless. And, you know, you have the knife to your throat the whole time. And if you're not comfortable with that, then you don't survive. Well, you know, I'm sorry you didn't get the opportunities, but I'm delighted you found the home you did because you've yep. given us oh, so many memories and so much entertainment. Um, Grigosh Petrovic uh, says, will we ever see Oliver Gavin as a team chief or an owner? <laughs> um, well, I mean, that's that's that's. Uh... It's a good question, but I mean, I can, you can never rule it out. But but it has to be, uh, you know, absolutely the right sort of deal. And um, you know, there, there are many many drivers who've who've gone on to be whether it's uh, you know team owners or driver managers or and they're a particular sorts of people. Uh, and yeah, you 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 know. Someone, someone like Alan McNish, I think. Short, short and Scottish is the yeah. <laughs> I think Alan, Alan, I think has got the the right temperament for it. You know, he's he's uh, all of his attributes and you know his his organisation, the way he goes about things, the structure that he has. Um, I, I think you know if that opportunity comes along for him to lead a program, I think he'll be fantastic at it, um, and and that may well happen, but. I, I don't know. It's it is a high pressure. 
uh, high pressure environment and, and job to do. And, you, you know, it's very easy to, 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 to think that, you know, it's all as a driver. And, and then it's, it's once you then come out of being a driver and you start looking at things in a slightly different way that you get, realize that actually there's an awful lot of other stuff. Yes, that you, 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 you did appreciate somewhat as a driver, but you, you have a greater appreciation for it when you when you're sitting slightly on the other side of the desk or other side of the pit wall or, you know, you're sort of really getting into the nitty gritty of how stuff works. And, and, and that's that's tough. Well, from something you might do in the future to something we know you're definitely doing in the future. Um, Simon Steele says, what approach will you have for your driving school? So for those that don't know about what your uh, your absolute current endeavour and focus is, mm. just take a moment to tell our listeners what it is that Oliver Gavin is going to be doing now. The helmet has been hung up, the race helmet at least has been hung up. What is the big plan uh, and what's going to fill your days for the coming years? Well, um, I am going to be uh, launching the Oliver Gavin Driving Academy, and that's going to be based centrally in Germany um, at the Boxburg Proving Grounds. And we have a facility there. Um, I'm, I'm partnering up with a, a German company called Drive and Fun, and uh, we are we have uh, our Corvette Stingrays on order. And they, the, the first, uh, the first cars will be arriving in uh, October, and we hope to be having our pilots, our first pilot programs towards the end of of October, um, and and we're going to be offering everything from on track experience, so track days or driver training. There's a very good driver training facility there at the Boxburg Proving Grounds that uh, Drive and Fun already uh, work with Bosch on that facility. And we'll have, uh, we'll have access to that, which is going to be uh, unique and, and, and very good. We'll also be offering uh, uh, sort of uh, travel experiences and, and, and sort of lifestyle experiences. But the, the, I suppose the ultimate thing that we are going to be offering is – a trip to the 2022 Le Mans 24 Hours. Uh, we're going to be taking all 12 of our Corvette Stingrays uh, to that event, and uh, it is going to be called the Road to Le Mans. And uh, we will be uh, incorporating, um, like I say, a, a travel experience with that, with also a, a track experience. And uh, they get a lap. Yeah, we're going to oh, we're wow. going to be. We're going to be we're going to be coming along to 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 the circuit and to the track, and we'll be there for the full experience and be there to cheer on Corvette Racing as they compete in the 2022 Le Mans 24 Hours. So that is going to be uh, something very special for 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 current Corvette owners or future Corvette owners. Um, but our uh, Eurospec Corvette Stingrays are going to be uh, on the way, and uh, the production of those starts in in August. And like I say, we hope to have those by the uh, the middle to the end of October. Uh, and that's uh, the key thing, isn't it? Because there is going to be European spec for the C8. Yes, and and there is going to be right hand drive for the very first time. So here in the UK, we are going to have Corvette Stingrays right hand drive fully. UK spec so that's that's going to be fantastic and the first time ever in in the history of of, of Corvette that we are actually going to have right hand drive versions so fantastic stuff yes have you tried a, a pre-production car yet right hand drive I have not and and that that car will be I believe there is one actually in the country okay. right now um but that is uh it's being secretly stored somewhere mm-hmm. 
Yes. Right, okay. Answers on a postcard. Where yes. is the Corvette to <laughs> Weekend Sports Cars, care of Oliver Gavin? Um, before we get into Corvette, let's uh, just have a quick trip trot through some of the other things you've done in this race career. Sure. Uh, for Stephen Gates says here, where does your podium finish in the 2014 Bathurst 1000 rank amongst your list of achievements? I mean, it, it really is. Uh, a, a, I, f- I feel quite proud of that, that going there for the very first time I finished on the podium. It was, it was amazing to share the car with Nick Perkat. Nick was a, a, is a great friend and uh, someone that I uh, most probably a, a regret of mine is that I never got to drive with Nick in a sports car. Um, you know, we shared a V8 supercars many times, but uh, that was very, very special to get that that Bathurst 1000 uh, um, yeah, podium because um, it is those cars are unbelievably difficult to drive. One of the hardest cars to master, and and that racetrack itself is just so unique, so special. Uh, the, the Mount Panorama is is one of the racetracks uh, every race driver if gets a chance to go to. They really should. It is extraordinary. Um, it, it tests you on so many levels. It is fast. It's flowing. It's it's challenging. It's, it's narrow. It's yeah. really really narrow. <laughs> yeah, and 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 any mistake is punished. And um, and and that's what kind of what what you what you want, you know, you 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 know you're, you're risking you know a lot, and you, you you it's that sort of whole sort of thing where you're every last little input and 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 and, and moment that you're there behind the wheel is really making a, a, a difference to the performance of the car, and you know there there is just no room for error, and 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 that's what every driver wants to do. They really want to you know, push themselves to the absolute limit. And that place is extraordinary. I mean, on the same kind of issue, you mentioned the difference in the cars. Oddly enough, I'm on the face of it between a Corvette and, you know, a Holden Commodore uh, V8 supercar. The kind of layout sort of similar, but I, I, Damien Peachman says, just how different is driving a V8 supercar compared to a GT car? Oh, it is very, very different. I mean, V8 supercar is a, a very skinny tire. Um, it's, it, there is no drive. There are no driver aids in a, in a V8 supercar. You, you are sequential shift. Um, uh, you, you know, you are healing and towing and you, you've got three pedals. You're working your way through, through, you're working very, very hard in the car all the time. And it really is an art and a skill. And, and when you go to one of those cars, it really does take you back to when I first started in, in sports car racing, when it was that that you, you were in that sort of situation where there was no ABS, there's no traction control, there's no paddle shift. Um, you, you know, the systems in the car were really, really limited. And, and, and it really was you and the machine and, and, and you were controlling absolutely everything, every single input, you know, every single shift, every single application of the throttle or the brake or the steering wheel was, was having a big influence on how the car would perform. And, and, and you've lost some of that with with all the driver aids that have come in. Um, and there's uh, it, it, it's a, a, a sort of like a a dumbed down version, I would say, of it. Yeah. Um, and 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 I think right now, I think uh, it, in supercars, there's a bit of a battle going on because they're about, I think, about to go to this Gen Three car um, in supercars. And and I think that's paddle shift and that's some other bits and pieces that they're going to do. And I know that there are a number of team owners and and uh, 
and drivers that are pushing back on it because yeah. they're, they're worried that it's going to it's going to ruin the show or, or, or the thrill of, of of driving these cars. But there was, there was that tipping point, the most motorsport with with uh, supercars for that matter, with NASCAR and kind of spec chassis for God's sake. I mean, that's that's uh, that's mm. earth shattering stuff. There, yeah. we're just again at that turning point with everybody looking to all sorts of different technology, whether or not it's to level the playing field whatever it, i mean does that to you just take something away from the contribution that you as a driver can make i think it does um you know i, I think that there from from when i first started in sports car racing to, to how it is now um you know the window that you you can operate in and and the level is extremely high um to now i'm talking about you know the, the the level that it's really got to you know the teams have got way more refined the cars have got way more refined the tire technology has you know all of the little systems that that help the driver you know that the, the actual the the window that you have to operate in in terms of lap time is just getting narrower and narrower and narrower whereas you know in when i first started you know it might be that sebring you know if you were one one and a half seconds within your lap time you know on an average then great but now you 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 know they want you within a couple of tenths and 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 so you know it just has got more and more refined over all of the years and and the pressure really is getting cranked up onto the drivers to to perform at the highest level all of the time and keep punching in in the lap times and so that's the that is that is hard and, mm-hmm. and mentally it's 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 very tough i think on drivers we're going to move on to corvette very shortly but there's one more question about another car you drove and i was there for this race as well jeff eastling would love to hear some memories on the 2001 sebring 12 hours win with the Celine s7r such a great moment he says when he was there to see in person i mean you and i have had a quick chat about this that that was a breakthrough moment surely wasn't it yeah, it, it really was. I mean, I, I, I was um, I've been racing in the US uh, for sort of coming on for about a year uh, at that point. And I had uh, been driving for John Field in 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 in, in his Lola BTK 10. And uh, I'd had some success in some Grand Am races. But this was really my first shot at, at, at a good Oh, well, I thought it was going to be a good opportunity um, at, at the Sebring 12 hours, and I'd never done the race before. And uh, Franz Conrad was, was, was running the Celine there, and uh, I was driving with Terry Borcella as well. And, and you know, the car had done limited testing. Uh, you know, maybe the most it had ever run for up to that point in one go was maybe three hours without a problem. <laughs> and so Sebring, 12 hours, unbelievably hard on cars, hot, just super tough. But, you know, we qualified, um, I qualified the car on pole and, and uh, Franz took the start and we uh, and, and off we went. And I'm standing there in the pit lane uh, with Terry Borcella and, and we were trying to listen in on a radio. I think we we're sharing a radio between us. And and then Franz comes by and the rear bodywork's hanging off. The rear deck is hanging off the car and he's driving round and round. And, he's, it, and, and it's about three or four laps later and still the team haven't been able to get him on the radio. There seems to be some sort of radio issue. And then eventually he just pulls, he, he, he gets, we get him on, on, on the radio and the team tell him the problem. And so then he's just barking these orders back at everybody about what they need to get ready. And the car, he comes next lap, he comes into the pits. 
he jumps out of the car even before the car has sort of come to a full <laughs> stop. He's run round the back of the car, grabbed all the tools, and he fixes the car himself. He doesn't have the mechanics fix it. He puts the rear deck back on the car. He does it up with 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 wire and pliers and tape, and he and and and, and, and he's, he's he's like a whirlwind. And then he jumps back in the car and roars off out the pits. And Terry and I are both just sort of standing there, looking at one another, going, "What, what on earth just happened there?" <laughs> so he he, then, he he carries on going, and then then we cycle through the drivers, and it's going pretty well. And then somehow we're in the lead. Um, that the, the, one of the Corvettes has had a problem, and we're quicker than the other one. And uh, I, and I come, we come to the very last pit stop, and I'm in the car, and I'm thinking I'm getting out because I've been in the car for a while, and I'm I'm pretty tired, and I'm thinking I'm going to be getting out, but the radio's still on the blink, and um, I've got all the belts undone. Uh, as I've rolled to a stop, I pop the door, and then the door is like stuck, and I can't get it open. And then I look out the windshield, and I see both Franz and Terry standing there not in their driver's suit, no helmet on, nothing. And then I'm being pushed back in the car. And I'm then being told, you're fi- I'm finishing the race. And so at that point, I think, oh, okay, well, I've just got to strap myself back in, suck it up and get on with it. And then I look past Franz and I see two people sitting on the pit wall that I then get the impression that we've got this if we can just get this this over the line we'll win and that was it was it was gary pratt and doug feehan wow and they were sitting there watching that final pit stop hoping that we were going to mess it up <laughs> and we very nearly did because i very nearly got out but i they shoved me back in the car and 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 i roared off out the pits and we won and that then really laid the foundations uh, in in Gary Pratt's and and Doug Feehan's mind about me joining the team in 2002, and so that was one of the big races for me for sure. Amazing car that Celine. It always did occur to me that it never quite got the attention no, it, it possibly it, deserved. Yeah, and I think it was a it, it was a and at that point it it really was a, a a good step ahead of of the Corvette, but the, the, the but the thing that was that was getting it done for for Corvette Racing was the team yep. um, and and the drivers that they had and they just worked it so so well and then they improved their car and then yep. it got to the same level as the Celine and the Celine just never developed. There you go, and that that is history. Well, let's move on to Corvette. There's plenty there. I've got three questions we're going to bundle in here: Craig Johnson, uh, Dan Rice, and Tegera three eighty all asking your preference. So Craig says you seem to have had a thing for American Muscle in your long and illustrious GT career. Which car was your favourite, and which your least favourite GT car to drive? Doesn't necessarily, by the way, have to be a Corvette. Dan though says C six, C seven, C eight, and for that matter, GT one and GT LM. What was your favourite? race which road a uh, road model would you put in your garage and together 380 says of all the corvettes you've raced which one would you have well i mean uh, i mean i i get sort of a bit gooey eyed and uh, the old rose tinted spectacles come out whenever i start talking about the old the, the c6r gt1 car um yeah that was such a a special car seven liter big thumping v8 um good downforce carbon brakes fantastic tires from michelin um good yeah good downforce it was it was just around le mans that thing was so special and you know racing the p2 cars um was was again you know just amazing to do and just brilliant battles with the guys at aston martin 
Um, and that was a very special period. Um, that sort of 2005, six, seven, eight, you know, around that period. Um, and I think the fifth thing, the fastest, the fastest one was, I think the one in 2008, I think we were doing, uh, 348, uh, in lap times there. Wow. Um, and, and, um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was monstrous, monstrously fast. Um, and, and, and a just huge fun to drive. Um, and then, you know, to race those things and wrestle those things around the places like Houston, uh, massively bumpy and tricky racetracks. But cool. When you got the thing in the groove, it was, it was a bit like riding a bucking Bronco, but if you could tame it, it gave you great satisfaction. Um, but it, it, in terms of road car, well, I can't wait for this, the Corvette Stingray Z51 right-hand drive version to turn up. Um, and that would be the car that I'd have in the garage for sure um, here here in the UK. Um, how, big a, how big a step forward is the C8? I mean, as a road car. Oh, it's, it's, I, I think it really is in terms of refinement, in terms of uh, the drive, in terms of just the overall experience that you get. Um, it really is a fantastic step forward. And, and you know... The, the, the engineers, uh, the road car engineers at, at Corvette have recognized that they had maximized the, the, the front engine concept. And so to, to keep moving things forward, the performance of the Corvette forward, they needed to go mid-engine. And, yeah. and I really think the likes of Taj Jupiter and, and the other guys who have been working there in the road car program, I think that they will – go down in history of, as, as, as bringing this mid-engine Corvette to the market and it being an absolute roaring success. I mean, I mean, the what, car... I mean what a massive risk. I mean, the massive, oh, because I mean, sure. what, I, mean I, I say this with absolute respect, you know, Corvette fans are known for being tribal, if you yeah. like, in their allegiance to the brand and to the, to all that means. And for such a fundamental shift to retain, and I've seen some of the figures about retention of customers and they're pretty amazing. Yeah, they are. And, 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 and right now I'm, I'm on a, I'm on a few forums, um, uh, Corvette C8, uh, Stingray forums. And, and you, you're seeing that, that people just are paying, you know, full retail price uh, for cars that have, have, have maybe um, you know six months old. You know, a uh, number of thousand miles on, on on the clock, and 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 the car is so sought after at the moment. It it really is something very very special. So you're um, you're the you're the guy on the forums as Johnny O Z O Six. I can't possibly divulge that sort of. <laughs> But it's it, it you know it, it is I think you're right. It's going to be it's a moment, isn't it, in the history of Chevrolet, in the history of certainly of Corvette, that oh, yes. you kind of wonder, kind of what next as we move into a completely different era. Um, you know, is this the the last big V8 we're going to see? You know, in a GM sports car. Don't know. But let's yeah, move on though, yeah. because yeah. there is another question about another GM car with another V8. John mm. Schultz says, "Do you have any memories of your two occasions at the wheel of the Serene Camaro GT3 in Adduct GT Masters 2013-2015? Back yeah. then, he said he loved that car, a stupidly big eight-liter V8. Sadly, the project fizzled out at some point." That was unbelievably fast in a straight line. I mean, it had just ridiculous torque and power. Um, 
but it did have some pretty fundamental um, suspension issues and right. we could never quite get it to work properly. Couldn't quite get the tyre to work properly. Couldn't quite get the aerodynamics to work properly. It was just a little bit too compromised in, in many areas. But it was, it was wicked fun at times. <laughs> I mean, really... Serini, if I remember rightly, Serini was, it's a meld, it's Hans Reiter was the yes. engineer behind it. Am yeah. I right, Serini was uh, his children's names? It was S.A. I think so. I think yes. so. Yeah. But either way, an amazing thing. There's still one of those cars active, by the way, down in Australia. Really, your hands, hands is 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 an unbelievable guy to work for and to drive for. I mean, he 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 is so smart and clever. But I think sometimes he gets himself so. <laughs> He sort of goes down these rabbit holes sometimes, and he can't quite get himself out of them. Um, but guy, he's passionate, so passionate about the sport. He Great loves fun. It. Great Brilliant. fun. You know, and obviously, the man behind uh, several generations of Lamborghini Gallardo GT3 car, GT2 versions of that car yeah. as well. And now I, drove, the I, drove, I, drove, I drove him in a, in a Lambo at, uh, at Estoril, and uh, also at Valencia. We finished on the podium wow. in Valencia. I'm trying to think but, of the other ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. A couple of other questions here about maybe things you, you'd like to have done. One from Dodger962, the other one from Peter Bester. Uh, Peter says, what's the one car you raced against you'd love to have driven? Dodger says, Is there, are there any other GTLM cars from your era you'd like to have raced? There's some other sports cars you'd be keen to drive. I guess I'm going to add in the GT1 cars as well. As well. There was one car you almost raced but didn't, wasn't there? Well, that was a one-off, wasn't there, at Cota? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, I sort of look at it and I go, well, I'd like to actually drive all of the GT current GTLM <laughs> cars or, or the ones that were, were in the championship a couple of years ago, because you want to, you want to experience what they've all had and, and, and what they've been racing you with. And, you know, the, you know, the strengths of your car, but you, you, you know, you, when you, you've been around the BMW for so long and then the, the, the four GT and the Porsche and the Ferrari, and you go, well, they're a little bit better here or, or, or there or, you know, mid corner or power down or or they're just able to just carry that little bit more mid you know, high speed um, corner speed. Um, you know, you, you, you want to sort of see what it is. What's the feeling that the drivers get through their their rear end or, or through back through the seat or the steering or, you know, what is that sensation they get? Because I know, I know all of that with the Corvette, but it'd be amazing just to, just to jump in all the other cars and, and, and see how they all run. Here's, um, here's, one for, here's one for you. Who do you think, and I think I know the answer, the driver that's driven most of them in competition? Ooh. I think it's a surprising answer. Uh, Someone who's done a couple of one-offs, uh, but has driven uh, not not necessarily the current iteration of GTLM. But if you go back just a few years, a remarkable variety of those cars. And in fact, I think the principal one he hasn't driven is the Corvette. Is it? Um, is it Farfus? It's Rob Bell. Rob Bell. But, uh, wow. Rob Ferrari, Porsche, wow. Jag- Jaguar. Um, Viper, the 4GT, and the Aston Martin uh, as a factory driver there yeah, as well. Yeah. I mean, so a remarkable variety of it, but the one that we'll was have missing, to go have a chat with him. You should, because he's yeah. probably, got some, probably got some numbers. You can maybe, maybe fill, that, uh, fill that. But it's the one that stands out. It doesn't matter what it is. Is there anything that stands out you think, my life would be complete if I could have a <laughs> test day or a race in that car? It's, is it, for instance... 
you know, an LMP1 hybrid? Is it an Audi R8 from back in the day? What, 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 what's that car? What's wow. the, what's the unicorn? Golly, now you got me on on the spot. What, what was the what was the car that I'd love to have driven? I mean, the Audi R8 was always uh, it, it seemed to be the the car that was dominant for so long, and that looked you know just so much fun to drive and quick, and it it ticked so many of the boxes. Um, I mean, the Bentley looks just just oh, yeah. so so classic and 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 quick. You know that year that they they won. There at Le Mans, um, peerless, didn't it? Did they yeah. didn't ever look under any doubt that that car was going to win that no, race? No, no, but the the the, the Peugeots Ooh. that were super quick, uh, the diesel-powered Peugeots, I think it was like 2010, yep. 11. I mean, they just looked. Uh, I remember. I think it was the very first year we were running in GT after we'd, we'd done GT1. And, and and all of a sudden we're back at Le Mans in, in GT and we're a lot slower than we remember being, you know, because we've we've taken, you know, about 100 horsepower out of the car and if not more. And, you know, we, we're just no way as, as as quick. I think we've lost some 10 or, or 15 seconds in terms of lap time. And the, the Peugeot was, would just come past us. And I remember three of them passing me at the S's just before Tetra Rouge and they were like it, 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 they passed me one passed me on the grass on the left and two <laughs> passed me on the grass on the right and then they were all back on the track by Tetra Rouge and it didn't look they lifted looked like they lifted at all and it just looked like they could just drive the thing anywhere and that was at Le Mans on low downfall spec you think the thing just took my breath away? It was. I think. Moment. I think you need a word with that Nick Manasian. He can put you in touch with a couple of the owners to see whether or not you can have a bit of a go if you're fit. I mean, but, I mean, I have to say, that with distance now, looking back at those cars, what an. I mean, all you know, 850 horsepower, whatever they were running when we were running with the full rich HCI FAP cars, yeah. I mean, just astounding beasts, absolutely amazing pastries. Uh, there you go. So potential Peugeot hypercar driver there, if you're listening <laughs> to the guys. Um, moving on, though, any races you wish you'd raced in but didn't, asked Damien Peachman. Uh, no back ring 24 hours, I think. That was, you never did that race? No, never did it. And um, Why did he do that Corvette? Yeah, I think he, it's... The so, Arribo car. Yeah, so Richard did that, and he did that with Tommy Milner and... Um, who else is in? Oh, Daniel Kelvitz, who I also mm-hmm. drove with um, in ADAC GT Masters for Callaway. And that was always a race that I, that I fancied doing and wanted to do, but just it never just lined up. And and then by the time I was sort of getting myself sorted out with stuff to possibly do it, you know, really it was, yeah, maybe the time was gone. So um, is, is that a race that you would do not for the win, but for the experience? Definitely. I mean, it, it's... There's, there's no doubt that that place is extremely special, and it's, it, every lap is a challenge. Well, I mean, you, that's, if you're across at your driving school and there's a, and there's a kind of a quarantine issue, I mean, there's plenty to do there. You could go and get that <laughs> ring. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I mean, because if, if I'm right, I'm, I right, Johnny O'Connell did it in. Uh, was that a Renault Clio? He did it in. I think that there's been. A, I think Johnny did it in something. Uh, 
something like that. I think Darren's done it in, in something like that. When you Before you can actually do the race in a GT3 car or anything at the high level, I think you, you have to do a number of VLN races, don't you? Yeah, to, you do to, now. Yes. yes, not then, yeah. not back then. But, oh, okay. uh, but okay. no, in Johnny's case, I think they took one look in his eyes and said, you're not getting anything quicker than a Clio. I think that, that was the... But it, he was uh, there. I think that was a bunch of mates' job. And... I remember looking down that entry list because for the broadcast for the Red Bitcoin 24 hours, one of my jobs was putting up the 17 page entry list and ticking through cars that were of particular interest. And it, there wow. really was that moment um, when you, is that the Johnny O'Connell is right. that guy? Uh, and yes, indeed it was, but um, it, yeah, you're right for me, an astonishing race. And every year it comes around and I said to someone just yesterday, yeah, You've got to go and see that before they ban it, because at some point someone's going to realise what they're doing in the woods down there, and someone's <laughs> going to come and shut up shop because it is, it it's is, nuts. It, it it's it's a very old school race, yeah. a very old school race, and and remarkably quick, utterly yeah. utter commitment. But mate, I'd love to see you do that one. That would be absolutely fantastic. Oddly enough, on a on a kind of an associated subject, Rick Isagata says. So what's your opinion on track limits? Why does it seem to be a bigger issue in Europe versus North America? And is there a solution to the issue? Well, I mean, w- when you look at it, you know, what they do in the US is is that they they do very little with the tracks to, to, to sort of change them. They, they, they make they make some adjustments and they they they, they put in the bigger areas of runoff when, when they feel it's needed. But they're running with an awful lot of, of grass. Uh, there on the side of the racetrack and it kind of looks after itself and um yes there are there are sort of rumble strips and runoff areas and, and bits of gravel here and there um but it it, it is that the, the racetracks have not been let's say sanitized as much in, in the u.s as they have been over here in europe um and there's there's there's, there's fours and against for, for all of those sorts of things but I think one of the things that so many European drivers experience when they go to the US for the first time and they race in, in IMSA or, or, or whichever championship it's, it's going to be in the US, they absolutely love the tracks and they love the experience and they love the rawness of it. And uh, there, there is something to be said about that. And and sometimes, and I feel that that's, that's happened with, some racetracks you know throughout europe that that either new ones or, or or ones that have been adjusted that they've kind of lost some of their character and they're not as challenging as they once were um mistakes aren't as punished as much um you know it, it it's it when when you've got acres of runoff to play with um it, it it does make you a little bit more blasé about stuff and mm-hmm. and you know if you're looking at road america and the carousel and the kink and you know that if you get it wrong there you're in the wall and you're going hmm, 150 160 <laughs> 170 miles an hour it's gonna be a big accident and and you know it, it's a challenge every lap uh in a gt car is for sure and you know look look at someone like road road atlanta almost exactly the same you know yeah any mistake there and you and you're punished thing is it does road atlanta is a strange one isn't it because at parts that circuit looks like there's a huge amount of runoff there's never a small accident at road atlanta no 
Absolutely not. And that place is is bumpy. It's physical. It's quite narrow. It's it's high grip most of the time. Um, and you can definitely get in the groove and in a rhythm. And, and the racing there, when you get a grid of 30, 40 cars there yeah. at, at Petit Le Mans, that is just intense so intense the 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 level that you have to have of concentration to do an hour or two hours or three hours there behind the wheel in a go is extraordinary that place is sapping really really sapping one of the i think one of the most physically mentally one of the hardest racetracks to drive for lap after lap after lap a couple of questions here about your ex-teammates. We'll go oh, with yeah. Kevin. Yeah, yeah. Kevin DeVries says, you've been part of some really strong driver lineups, the likes of Ron Fellows, Young Madison, uh, Johnny O'Connell, Max Pappas. Which of those guys do you think miss racing at the pointy end of the field the most? And also, which of them was the main instigator for any shenanigans? Uh, well... Johnny loved telling a story, and he would he would he would do many a thing um, to, to, to try and sort of get you in trouble. Uh, he was, <laughs> was causing a bit of mischief. Same with Jan, really. He was always trying to pull a fast one on you. Um, Max Max always seemed to just have something go wrong for him. I remember him falling out of the shower at Le Mans one year, smacking his head on something. He then fell off his bicycle or got hit, actually, I think, on his bicycle to Petit, when he was, we were at Petit Le Mans one year. He got knocked off uh, by an 18-wheeler, like a, a fully oh, articulated wow. lorry, yeah. And, and he had tyre marks on his helmet and his what? helmet got crushed. Yeah, I mean, he was so, so close to being killed. Um, and he had to he had to sleep sitting up, I think, for the two nights leading up to uh, Petit expo- Le Mans. Because that explains he, he, such a lot, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> he couldn't... <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't lie down because his because his head would swell up so badly, all, and he wouldn't be able to get his helmet on uh, in the morning, and so he, he had to sleep sitting up. I mean, but with Max, it, he always just seemed to just something would just be following around, and he would just have this sort of bad luck. Um, Ron, Ron was just he was always the gentleman, um, and he was always just the leader. You know, yep. he had this calm sort of way about him and sort of this, uh, I wouldn't say elder statesman, but he just had this quiet calm of a leader and quite a assuredness um, that, that was always kind of reassuring, really. Um, Do you think in some ways you took over that mantle when Ron took a step away? Yes, I, I, I do. That was kind of what Doug Feehan said to me. He, he sort of he he. You're um, now going to have to be a Canadian, yeah. <laughs> not quite, <laughs> uh, but he he sort of said to me. He said, "You're." He said, "Ron's Ron's now. He's not with us. He's not going to be uh, driving for us anymore. But you're now going to be uh, leading the. You're you're the team captain. Yeah. And and I want you to fill his 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 boots and. That's 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 some responsibility, but also some honour. Yes, it really was, and 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 at the time I was a bit sort of unsure exactly how I was going to do it, but but I grew into the into the role, and and you know as the younger guys started coming through, you know the likes of Tommy and Jordan and others, um, you know you you could kind of see uh, you know how you were guiding them, leading them, 
um, sort of nurturing them along, and then, then obviously then then turning into to the absolute champions they are now. So great to do, great to be part of. But you know, Ron was hugely influential in that still, and and it, that very first year that I drove with him, he sort of said to me, "Ollie, you've timed this absolutely right." He says, you're at the right point in your career. You're young enough. He says, I can see that this program is going to go for quite some time. And he says, you are in the perfect opportunity position to take full advantage of that. And it's like he had a crystal ball. It really was. I mean, because you know, he almost could see that I was going to have this amazingly long career with Corvette racing. And at the time, you sort of look at it and you go, yeah, OK, if this can last for like three years or five yeah. years. or And it lasted 20 i was like wow that's amazing but but ron had that he could he had almost like had that vision that was amazing to me well it's a, let's go on to ask a further question about uh, ron mark urban says as a canadian he's asking therefore politely he just wants to hear a good ron fellow story well um the one that always springs to mind with ron is is uh, the end of petit le mans in 2002 and we're racing against the pro drive ferraris and um, we are struggling against them. Uh, we're on Goodyear's. They're on Michelin. And um, yeah, they're so quick. And we're not really in the hunts. And it's come to the final hour of the race. And Thomas Enger's in the Ferrari. And he has some contact. And he uh, gets a puncher. And so it's 30 minutes, I think, to go. And so Ron and whoever's calling the strategy, I think Gary Pratt at the time and, and Feehan, they just go, right, we're going we're gonna to pit Ron and we're going to put the softest set of Goodyear's on and qualifying lap every lap. And he, he, he pits, they put the soft Goodyear's on and it was just perfect. You know, the way that it all worked, the track temperature, the tyre, the pit stop, everything. And Ron goes out and he's just ripping off super fast lap times, qualifying laps, every single lap. And he passes Thomas and we come through with a victory. And, you know, it was, it was like Ron at the height of his powers. And uh, it was amazing. You know, he, he, he got out of the car like he was a complete hero and he was i mean he stood on he stood there on top of the car and we were like man you absolutely won that for us that day and for me you know that was three the three big races that i did with the team in 2002 i won i was part of the winning uh, trio um in in all three of those so we won sebring we won at le mans and then we won at petit le mans Wow. But really, really, Ron won that race for us there at Petit in 2002. That was pretty special. Goes on to uh, another question from Daniel Summersgill. It says, which driver combination that you're a part of do you think gelled the best, both in teams and the teamwork, and also the camaraderie between the drivers? I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've had uh, some fantastic teammates. You know, my time driving with Olivier was very, very special. We won a lot of races together and a lot of championships. And that time that we were together um, in sort of like four, five, and six, when Jan was driving with us um, at the longer races and, and we won Le Mans three years in a row, that was very, very special. Um, but I suppose the one that really stands out that's a little bit fresher in my mind was 2015, and that was uh, Le Mans 
and the, the the sort of the issue and and the the sort of heartbreak for for the number sixty three car when they had a problem with with Jan or Jan had the problem and and he, and he crashed in practice and qualifying and that put their car out of the race in in, in twenty fifteen there at Le Mans and so we were down to a single entry the first time and only time that that, that uh, we've entered there with a single car into the race and just the the level that everybody just went to within the team and just to sort of gel around and, and, and push everybody on and, and, and really support one another. Um, and, and the way that, that Jordan and, and Tommy just absolutely rose to the occasion and, and, and that, you know, we started off that race sort of thinking, okay, you know, we're, we're maybe within, with a bit of a shout here, but we've just got to be smart and, and keep it clean and, and, you know, work our way to the front. And we just did, everything right really did and and it, and it was just one of those magical magical races where it it, it kind of the the the, the 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 sort of the race chose us and 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 yeah. then it just all seemed to just sort of come together for us and um it was it was a, it was a magical moment and is that the answer to graham collins question that so says uh, which single race or moment stands out as the most memorable it certainly was. It certainly was one of 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 the of the most. I mean, I can't sort of look past. I suppose I can't really look past the the end of uh, the Daytona 24 Hours in in 2016, where I am I am there racing Antonio Garcia for the victory, and the president of General Motors is 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 sitting there mark royce is sitting there on the timing stand um no pressure and, then yes and he's <laughs> he, we have been told before we get in the car um that he's going to be there on the timing stand till the end of the race and we will be able to race one another fair and square Ooh. and and it was uh, you know it's that sort of that moment where you think god if we screw this up we are so done you know? <laughs> If we if we have any contact or one of us goes off or you know it, it, that's it they're just going to tear the contract up in front of your face and just show you the door, um, and it was it was just remarkable to race Antonio for those that last sort of thirty thirty five minutes. God, he's so he was so fast in that car and and I was pedaling like crazy. I was jumping up and down in the seat. I was screaming as I was coming to line to the line on that very last lap. Um, just, uh, I, I, I was just, what was willing, the like, I was 0.034 of a second. Good I think it was, it was, it was about a foot and a half after 24 hours of racing. Amazing and stuff. And one of those was. great memories, one of those great Daytona memories. Yeah. Um, we're going to wash up, uh, last few we've got here. Um, James counter says, what's your favorite Corvette ad campaign? Are you, were you one of the guys that's got old ads up in your garage? <laughs> <laughs> he says he likes the Corvette Racing Memories campaign for the late 2000s at Le Mans. I remember that one. Yeah, I mean there, there are there are many that, that the team have done, and uh, you know that if it's hard to pick out one, you know, because I've been fortunate enough to be part of of so many, and uh, you know that some of the stuff that they've done over the years has been pretty special. Um, you know, there's one on the wall here that that Mobile One did for us and the victory that we had in 2010 at Petit Le Mans 
and it's a it's a picture of the car and there's a droplet of the oil that was in the engine uh, and it's it's encased in a in a, in, 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 in a little thing here but it that race was extraordinary we'd raced the ferrari for the whole the whole 10 hours there at petit le mans and they it came down to the final pit stop and they didn't put quite enough fuel in the car. And right. I passed, I think, Tony Villander and the Rissi Ferrari. I passed him with two corners to go. And I was, I didn't even realize that I'd passed him because uh, I was on the radio because I couldn't see the number on the door. But I knew it was a Ferrari I'd passed, but I didn't know whether it was the car that we were racing or not because he'd just gone out of shot, out of, out of my view. Yeah. And the, my fuel alarm was on. <laughs> And so I was panicking because we were going to run out of fuel. And I just passed him as I came into the, in, into the, the, the parking lot or turn 10 there at, at, at Road Atlanta. And uh, I'll just never forget Chuck Houghton, my, my, uh, my engineer on the radio, just, just his voice. And him just going, we won. We won. We won. <laughs> we won. <laughs> he was just screaming it. And he couldn't um... believe it. It was. It was just. Uh, so that that one's a in, in pride of place here on on the Fantastic. wall here in my office. So yes. Yeah, there you go. Ryan Terpstra says or asks rather, who do you think would make a better a crew member for Corvette racing, Rodney Sandstorm or Fonzie? <laughs> <laughs> we should make clear for anybody that doesn't know, Fonzie is Jordan Taylor's dog. Rodney Sandstorm uh, is a close relation to Jordan. Yes. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I think I think that that um, Rodney, his alter ego, shall we say? Yeah, Fonzie would make a great mascot, and and you know he he would he would uh, he he would be a great supporter, um, but he hasn't got those opposing thumbs, has he? So he, he can't pick anything up, and 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 maybe 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 Rodney can at least hold something and and hand you a drink or uh, or or uh, you know maybe even hold a wheel or uh, or or the or the board as you're coming in for a pit stop. Um, but yeah, <laughs> probably Rodney. Yeah, Rodney. <laughs> on, on a similarly doggy theme, um, I'll oh. come to a doggy theme in a moment. We'll come to that later. Uh, Brett Ross, clearly a big Corvette racing fan, says thanks very much indeed, Ollie, for your contribution to success of the team throughout the years. Here's one: Can you share your? Can you share? This is a question: Can you share uh, your favourite Doug Fear moments? So there's two questions really are there, aren't there? What is the favourite Doug Fear moment, and can you share it? <laughs> I can share it. Um, and it, it, this, this was, this was something back in, uh, 2001, um, uh, Corvette racing, uh, arranged a trip for us to go out into the Arabian sea to be on an aircraft carrier. And, uh, we, uh, it was, it was out there to support, support the, uh, the guys in the Navy. And we, we, we flew out there on a, on a, on a, on a plane on a on a prop plane and we landed there on uh was this from the Bahrain airbase we were talking about yes uh, yes yes yeah yeah absolutely and so we flew out from the Bahrain airbase on this prop plane it was about three hours out into the Arabian Sea we land on the aircraft carrier and I mean it is just it's crazy it's this overload in in, <laughs> in things happening you know this sort of noise the, the the sights and the sounds everything about it is extraordinary um and we have this full sort of tour of 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 the boat uh and of the ship and uh, just, just going to correct you it's yeah, a ship. Yeah, it's <laughs> ship it's definitely a ship it's definitely a ship yeah anybody who wants to correct me and and so so uh we're there 
and we've been going for a couple of hours and then we get up to the bridge and it's the the captain's chair and the bit where he 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 sits there on on the bridge and he's he's looking out over the deck and the the whole thing well feehan can't help himself you know no nobody's allowed to sit in this chair it's it, at all except for the captain well feehan takes it upon himself to jump straight in the chair and he starts barking the orders and telling everybody what they're going to be doing fire yeah. <laughs> i mean he's having a brilliant time and then and then he's still going on and on and on and then it, it's going quiet in the room and we've all turned around and we've seen that that the captain has arrived <laughs> in the bridge well feehan is still going and and he the, the captain just sort of like slowly walks around in front of Feehan, and it's like Feehan slowly dries up, and it's like <laughs> it just dawns on him who this guy is, and that he's sitting in his chair, and that he needs to get out of it as fast as he possibly can. I think that's the only time I've ever seen Feehan at all sheepish or awkward or stuck for words. <laughs> he is. Usually he can talk himself out of any situation. There was no talking himself out of that one. So he, 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 he was well, well and truly dressed down by the captain at that point. But uh, yeah, that was, that was good fun. That was a Brilliant great trip. Stuff. Long Beach. James yes. Countess, what's your favourite memory of racing at Long Beach? He's absolutely loved watching Corvette guys doing battle around there. Well, uh, you know, 2012 was was a great race there. Um, I love driving the, the C6R around there. Um, we we had a very very good car that year, and we and we won that that race well. Um, but in in 2018, uh, to get the victory there with Tommy was was very special. We'd had it seemed that Long Beach every year it, 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 for about a three or a four year period, it had a story for us at Corvette racing, you know, whether it was the last lap issues and problems, um, getting, getting turned around by a Porsche, um, there being some other massive snafu, one car getting through another car, not, uh, leads literally changing on that very final lap of the very last corner there of the race. Um, and and in, in 2018, Tommy drove brilliantly and he got us into the lead and uh, he he got us to the end of the race there, I think, on threadbare tires. And he nearly crashed at the very last <laughs> of the very last lap. Um, but he got it to the end and he got us over the line. And that was my 50th victory. With, with oh, wow. So wow, that, was, wow, wow. that was pretty special. So, yeah, that victory there was 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 a very special one. Um, we're coming towards the end of this lot. Uh, our good friend from Twitter, What Good Are Notebooks, which is his uh, handle. Given your legendary involvement with Corvette, do you actually like yellow sports cars? Yes, I do. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do. And, and, and you know, the, the yellow has just been such a big part of, of my career. And in fact, every car that I raced during my career that I had success in had a certain amount of yellow on it. So yellow, like, yellow and white. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So even like the formula first car that I, I oh, raced, what? very oh, first yeah. raced in, 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 uh, in, in 1990, 1991. And then all the formula three cars that I raced and, and I won in, they all had wow. yellow on. Um, and in fact, it just, it's just been the theme. If the car has been yellow, I've generally had success in it. So is that, is that why you still haven't taken off your Corvette racing race suit? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. 
plays it every day. If you've yeah. seen him down the local pub, uh, he's Sorry, there, there propping really propping the pub. Sometimes takes his hands device off. Sometimes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Lance Snyder says, Ollie, you crossed the bridge between non-air-conditioned and then air-conditioned cars. Was it more enjoyable to race an air-conditioned car? And how much did the AC help driver performance? Y- yes, that's the short answer. Yes, it really did help. And yes, I really enjoy driving air-conditioned cars. One of the things that I have to say was a big battle for me throughout my career was heat. And it seems that I am I'm not so good at dealing with heat. And I would say that I was the one that felt it the most in the race car and struggled with it the most. There was some testing that the team did. Um, on all of us, this was most probably three or four years ago, we had somebody from um, Michigan State University come and do some testing on us in the race car uh, there at Watkins Glen one year, and it was ferociously hot. And I was the hottest one in the car. My my core temperature would spike the fastest, and I struggled the most with heat. We're talking, uh, we're talking physically, not aesthetically here in the hospital. Yes. Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. And 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 so any air conditioning system in, inside the cockpit was definitely a win for me. And yeah. and so the C8R, I mean, it's you, you <laughs> get in it now, and it is amazing. Uh, it's just beautiful to drive. It's just cool. There's so much air moving inside the car. They really have done a brilliant job on that. Uh, it, it's, and it, it, it's the days of actually see it's not an easy and I'm, I'm not in any way comparing the uh, the experience of seeing someone in heat um distress to being in heat distress but it is not easy it certainly wasn't for many years to see truly unbelievably physically fit drivers getting out of uh, race cars in real heat. I remember one occasion, I think it was at Spa, York Bergmeister getting out of the car, I was there to just have a quick chat with him, and there was no way that conversation was going to happen to the point no. where I did feel it necessary to go and get assistance for him from the team because he looked in that much distress. And yes. you're fiercely fit and fiercely competitive, but mm. my God, those things were hot. Yes, uh, and, and it, it is it is a problem that still is is there. I mean, and even the car that I raced at Daytona this year, um, you know, the Lexus, yeah. that's still got some problems with with heat inside the car. And uh, I know that they're looking at that and looking to address it, but it is an age old problem. You know, the fact that you're racing a, a race car that you know you're wanting it to be as light as possible and, and as fast as possible, and you you've got this great big heat producing unit in front of you or just behind you and and that heat sink it, it, it always migrates somewhere and it ends up heating you up and yeah. it is a big problem um but yeah corvette racing have really nailed that and, and the c8r is fantastic to drive now so fantastic stephen gate with another one says despite all the countless wins trophies glittering career with corvette is there a tiny part of you that wishes you'd driven a top class prototype at le mans uh i mean would you would you have swapped any of those years for an opportunity? I don't know. Let's say in one of those Peugeots. I mean, yeah, I mean, there was there was w- one year I think I did. Um, I think it was two thousand and seven at Le Mans. I think I did forty five minutes, and then uh, we broke something on the car, and then I spent the rest of the time just watching. Um, so maybe that would have been the year to. to was that to, the drive shaft year? Yeah, that was a drive shaft year. So um, you know. You can always pick a year when you go, okay, well, that didn't really work out. But, I mean, yeah. honestly, uh, to be able to start start Le Mans every year for in, in the same team 
um, for since 2003, I, I started Le Mans every single year uh, for the number 64 and the number 74 car all the way through until 2019. Yeah. So every year I, I took the green or the, the, the tricolour um, to start the race. And so I started Le Mans 24 hours for all those years in a row. And it was wow. amazing. Just amazing. Fantastic. Okay, one quick one here from our good friends at Travel Destinations. 2022, they say, is the 60th Rolex 24. What would you like to see happen as part of the pre-race festivities to mark that occasion? Wow. I'll give an answer for this one. I would like to see um, as many as of the previous winning drivers uh, around as possible. We quite often see the cars, not often the drivers. Uh, We get some of them, but uh, not often you know, a very large number or proportion of them. I think that would be a great thing as we come into a new era is to celebrate the, the the heritage of that race. And in particular now, as it comes back into, I think what's going to be another new era with this convergence, Ollie, that, you know, we're going to see far more factory teams coming together. I think it'd be a great thing to kind of celebrate what's passed as we look forward in a couple of years time to see the future as well. Anything you might add to that? I mean, I think that's that's a great answer. I can't really add on that, Graham. So, yeah, I, I would be I would be very happy to come along and 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 be part of that and and to see the race happen and unfold. It is yeah. it is a great it is a great race and and it's tough. It's a very very hard race to win, um, but yeah, massive fun to do. Couple of questions about other things you're up to now, Grigosh uh, Petrovich. Excuse me, I get this wrong every Petrovich said, um, what was the biggest challenge in your uh, live TV compensating debut at the Asian Le Mans series? Except, thank you, for dealing with Graham Goodwin. Kidding, of course. Uh, <laughs> are you going to show up behind the microphone at Le Mans Spa? Are we going to see more of you, hear more of you? I know we're, we're, we're talking, aren't we, about yes. various bits? Yeah, we are. We are talking about stuff. And I really hope that I'm going to be able to get to uh, to, to one of those races and, and to be part of a team. Um, you know, I've, I've enjoyed it. I, I certainly did enjoy the Asian Le Mans series and, and working with with a, that really great little team that's there. And Everybody apart from me. Yep. Yeah, yeah every, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> it's the gags. It's the gags. <laughs> Uh, but but no, it was it was it was a, it was an eye opener. There's no doubt. Yeah. Um, and working on live TV is tough. It's hard. And you know, I've got a, a lot of knowledge, but it's just it's another skill, isn't it? And and being being there live on air is it really is a, a skill and stuff I need to work on. Um, but there's I did enjoy it an awful lot. And it's it's just that it's it's a very different thing to be at a racetrack and to not be competing yeah um that's something that is a little alien and a little odd and it will most really take uh, a little while to adjust to but i'll transition yeah. and um yeah it was it was very enjoyable to do the the only parallel I, I can offer is i've had three or four occasions where for various reasons i've been embedded with a race team for a race right. once at le mans uh, oddly enough a winning year uh, for Team LNT with the panels yeah. uh, that year. But uh, it is a completely different experience racing from anything else I've done. So that's a tiny window on what must be f- infinitely more depth to the infinity pool of your experience uh, <laughs> with all of this. Um, yeah, but uh, let's put it this way. I'd be, at this point, very surprised indeed if you don't hear uh, Ollie's voice and hopefully see Ollie's 
uh, phase two on broadcast moving forward. Um, Jackie Warnock, Jackie, a, a, a very youthful 44 years old now, the social media guru at the uh, Age of the Month series. Uh, Jackie says, what does Ollie think is the most annoying thing about me? <laughs> Thanks, Jackie. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, I could ask Trudy to pop in at this point. She gives some pointers, but uh, but I, I, what about the husky? What can the husky say about it? Well, the husky's actually got the next question. He says, "When you were away with Dad in February, did he take you for a walk every day?" He did take me yes. for a walk every day. Yeah, but, he did. but I, we we're trying to get off some of those. <laughs> what I could drag you out of the bar. Well, yeah, fair enough. But um, but yeah, it, in fairness, uh, we, there was a concerted attempt. And and by the way, thank you very much to the management team at the Bar International Circuit, where we spent uh, some days escaping the Holiday Inn at Heathrow Airport, uh, yes. but uh, for allowing the, the the people for the Age of Le Mans series who were serving their time to go and exercise the Bar International Circuit. But no, the, the, the truth of the matter is, um, Ollie did indeed put me on an exercise regime, and it did make me feel rather better. And yes, I did lose some pounds. Thank you very much. But, uh, oh, man. Well done, but uh, in terms of in terms of Jackie's kind of question it's 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 facile it's it's not worthy of her really i mean let's face it there's such a long list of things that are annoying about me that we've only got over half an hour where where, where do we where do i start it's the gags isn't it (laughs) (laughs) head in hands yeah i I think we need to move on we will move on we're going to move into our regular kind of questions and what i'm going to say here ollie is there's anything you want to dive in with here we're going to do a bit of a quick fire thing at the moment uh, because that was well over an hour and delightful stuff thank you so much we did say listeners that we would look back uh we we missed uh just looking back the the show after ollie stepped away finally from uh professional driving career we missed doing that for a couple of weeks but that's the opportunity and thank you so much some great questions there um few questions on him, sir. It's not a racing weekend just gone, so not a lot there. But Alex Eichmiller says, with Helio Castroneves having one Daytona 24 and Indy 500 this year, who do we harass to get him to Le Mans? Has, he ever won, has anyone ever won all three in a year? Well, bear in mind, that's the first time the two have been won. The answer is no. Helio is due to race, I think, I'm right at Monza in the WEC with into Europol, unless that's changed. So I think we'll see him in the Inter Europol Orica. Um, I hope we do see him at Le Mans. Um, it would be that would be a great celebration of talent in, a, in an epic year, wouldn't it, Ollie? Oh, it would it'd be amazing. I mean, it really would. I mean, it's just, it just just to get him there and just to get him in the car and, and competing there at Le Mans would be very very special and richly deserved. Absolutely. Uh, a guy that you seldom see without a smile on his face. Brandon Kratzer says, is there any news about uh, whether or not Ford will join him so with an NBH programme? I think uh, if Marshall was here, he would say, take a look at what's been written recently on racer.com. The answer is they looked pretty hot to drop for an LMDH programme. That seems to have gone very much quieter. I don't think we're expecting them to be anywhere close to the early takers in LMDH. Uh, Ricky Zagata says last week, uh, Marshall mentioned that V12 engines would have a hard time fitting in the LMDH chassis rules. But what about a flat four, flat six? Could this entice a company like Subaru to join? It could. I don't think it will. Uh, I think there's all sorts of um, things out there at the moment that are going to count against some of the kind of not not that Subaru, not a challenger brand, but not either a massive mainstream brand. Right now, we've got a number of companies that are kind of struggling to wait, uh, find their way through the pandemic and the pressures that go. But could someone pop in and do that? Um, yeah, they could. Let's wait and see. Um, Together 380. 
Will the VW Group, effectively having control of a multimatic supply of LMDH, stop other manufacturers pursuing a program as they cannot have their preferred supplier? You'd have thought that, but I think our uh, understanding was certainly at one point, if Ford were going to come, it would have been with Multimatic. So there is some capacity there, uh, albeit now with the the VAG Group's um, efforts looking like it's a multi-brand beyond even Porsche and Audi. We're going to have a quick look down here because, Ollie, I think you've got about a uh, – we're approaching 7 o'clock here in the UK. And I think you've got something else you've got to pop along to. So let's have a quick look and see if there's anything there. Uh, I'd be interested in in your view, by the way. The One of the stories in the – when we get into the WEC, Aslam's, Elms and ACO section, which is our ACO rules section, Glickenhaus, are you, you familiar with their work? I mean, I, I I speak with um, Richard Westbrook every now and again, and um, you know I've been I've been I've been following some of their stuff, um, you know, on on social media, and it's, I mean, it's it's a great endeavour. I mean, it's it's amazing that, that, that they are you know fully funded, privately funded, and they're going for it, aren't they? And they've got some great guys on board and some great expertise there. It's it's it's, it's going to be fantastic to see how they they stack up. It is. It is. We're going to come back to that because I'm going to ask you one more of our questions. I'm going to dip down into the um, the area we call general and fun this time. And I'm going to ask you a question to which I don't really have an answer, but I think you might. Um, Max Mosley sadly passed away, obviously, very recently. And Gregor uh, Piotrovic says, what kind of influence did Max have on sports car racing? Not necessarily going to ask you to answer that one. But what interaction did you have with Max in your time, particularly, I guess, in the safety car period um, through Formula One? Um, a man of huge influence. I mean, I'll, I'll give my only story here is one of my jobs when I worked in government was the very, very early knockings of what became the Euro NCAP mm. Um things i was involved with the launch of that in the uk this is the uh the the, the tests that have improved collision standards uh both with other vehicles and with pedestrians on every new car effectively in the world i mean any memories of max that you can bring forward well i mean i i, I remember max um and he was he was really after i'd sort of spent time with charlie whiting and he was sort of the person who got me into the the role of being safety car driver um max was the sort of the next the next person that i met and he was he was really my 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 boss um you know when when it was all fia related stuff and you know i would see max at times at, at different races um and he was he was absolutely the, the, one of the sharpest people I've ever met, smartest people. He was, it was sort of like he was three or four steps ahead of every situation. You know, he was always sort of contemplating the answer, but kind of knew what the answer was going to be because before he'd even asked the question to, to, to numerous people. Um, and he did have a rather unusual sense of humor, um, you know, with the, the jokes he'd tell or something that he'd say and he'd find it hilarious. And, and you'd be like, I'm not kind of and maybe I'm just not on the same wavelength. Um, but, yeah, I mean, obviously someone that, that drove forward safety and, you know, he was, you know, in that era where when he was just starting off in the sport, you know, he was seeing just drivers being killed 
so and, often and, and friends and, i guess at that yes, stage i mean yeah. you know, it was through that era with march mm. and you know that that's got to be tough for anybody yeah, and, it, and i think that that obviously had a massive effect on him and he's he, he was a, you know, him and bernie and and you know the likes of sid watkins you know jackie stewart and others all driving that sort of that thing forward of, of trying to improve the safety of racetracks improve the safety of cars and and, and 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 that's really got to be his legacy. And uh, you know, he, he re- him and Ber- Max and Bernie were just an unbelievable partnership. And you know, you, you, you I never felt that intimidated by Max, but you knew that he was a, 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 an unbelievably s- smart guy. Whereas with Bernie, you always felt that he had that sort of aura and that edge, sort of, a bit of an yeah, edge. Yeah, yeah, and that that sort of. Um, you know, he'd he'd come and find me. I'll be standing there next to the safety car just before the start of a race, and he'd be walking. He's always had his 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 radio in his hand, and he would stand there, and he'd come up to me, and he'd stab me in in the stomach with his yeah. radio area. He could and reach he, your stomach. Yeah, and and he he'd go, "You all right, boy? You ready? You ready? You better not screw this up." <laughs> It's an odd thing. I mean, the only parallel I can give you is nothing to do with motorsport. But I think the parallel is the drive that we saw from Max Mosley through that period. Yeah. And I can recall a conversation with a very prominent politician in one of my previous jobs where I had to ask some quite searching questions about a policy they wanted to drive through. And their answer stuck with me for life, which is you need to understand that if you choose the path of a politician, and that's effectively what being in Max's position was, it's a political position, that you have a very finite life uh, in a position of influence and power to make the differences that you've wanted to make for your entire life, and therefore you're in a rush to do it. Uh, I've never forgotten that, and I think if you look back at what he did achieve in what was a pretty short period Mm. uh, at the top of motorsport – the reality is that you and I have got friends that we can still pick up the phone and talk to because of what Max Mosley achieved. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, I think there's an awful lot of people that, that, that have to thank him for that and um, or they can thank him for that, let's say. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he really did. He really did leave a legacy on our sport for sure. Um, well, I think with that, I know you've got to get, get away. I'll ask you to leave the, um, the line open. Uh, but if you, if you want to mute it, basically, because I'm not really quite sure whether or not this will carry on recording if you hang up. Uh, so if you can leave the line open. But for now, I want to just say a thank you to you, Ollie, um, not just for your time today and the great fun we had at the start of this year, but for two decades of entertainment with Corvette Racing and before that. Um, and it's been a privilege to watch that happen. It was a particular privilege, and I want to say on behalf of everybody that couldn't be there, I was very sorry that, you know, the last race we had with you at Spa, there wasn't what I hoped we would get, which was the fans to show the appreciation. I'm sure they will the next time you appear uh, with a proper crowd, um, you know, and a Corvette presence. But uh, for now, Ollie, um, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Graham, and uh, I will see you soon.
thanks very much indeed we're going to carry on though um with a bit of a solo effort from this point forward um to go through some of the other questions, particularly the Weckhausen's Elms and ACO. Daniel Peachman asks, how much money do SRO and ACO lose holding events behind closed doors? Depends on the event, of course, but it's fair to say, fair to point you towards what the ACO have effectively said, which is that they don't believe they can afford to um, hold the Le Mans 24 hours again without fans present. I mean, just ask yourself this question. It's something like 150,000 paying customers at the Le Mans 24 hours, whether or not they're people paying on the gate or someone is paying for their ticket for them. Those tickets are paid for. If you average that out at a conservative hundred euros a pop, that's just what the ticket revenue is costing. Add on to that the revenue from uh, hospitality, huge revenue from hospitality for VIP guests and customers of the teams and the manufacturers. Add on to that the grandstands, add on to that the concessions. It is a mighty amount of money. Less so for some of the other supporting events, it's fair to say. But either way, uh, make no mistake that with the number of events that have had to be cancelled and reorganised and the additional cost that's coming into organising those with more protocols, health protocols, just to keep these events running and testing. And you know, by testing, I mean COVID testing. Uh, there is a mighty uh, element of financial uh, trauma, if you like, inflicted on uh, these race organisers. I know everybody is very impatient indeed to get back to the tracks. It's beginning to happen. I'm actually at the moment drafting something that talks about what's going on this weekend with the Nürburgring 24 hours, what the proposals are for the Spa 24 hours. It's beginning to happen. It's a different mindset in the United States, or at least in part the United States at the moment. And that's up for debate as to whether or not that's the right or the wrong way to go down this road. But Damien, the answer is it's a, been a hefty impact and, and there will be lasting impacts on uh, those organisations. I think one of the things you'll see, for instance, I don't expect to see news anytime soon that the proposals to uh, refurbish the pits complex at Le Mans will be going forward uh, anytime immediately soon. I think that that one has been pushed back at least and remains to be seen with the uh, the reason for doing it being the centenary. I don't think that's going to happen. And my guess is that that'll be kicked a bit further down the road. That can. Uh, Clement Rosanne says, what are the, I don't think I've heard that name before, Clement. So if you're new, you're very welcome. Welcome to the Weekend Sports Cars. What are the rules concerning language of radio communications for the WEC and at Le Mans? Notice some LMP2 teams speak to their drivers in French over the radio, especially during longer races. Found it quite surprising considering race control radio transmissions are in English. I think the answer is you've got to communicate with race control in English, but you can communicate to your team in whichever language is yours. Uh, what you can't have uh, are uh, encrypted uh, communications. Um, James Fox says, with the potential expansion of the top class to at least 14 cars, two each from Toyota, Clickenhaus, Persia, Audi, Porsche, he says Acura and Ferrari, plus others and privateers, plus add in the P2 cohorts, will the GT class in whatever form it is by then, by then would be 2023 and onwards be squeezed off the back of the grid i don't think so is the straight answer i know we've seen from other outlets um the uh, prediction that there will be a prototype only class by 23 24 i don't see that um i think the key we're going to hear something we believe from the aco at Le Mans this year about what their proposals for the future gtr will that mean something like gt3 pro coming in 
will there be a gap between the end of GTE Pro, which we think has probably got, it's definitely got one year to go, maybe a second year after that as a kind of carryover uh, through into the combined, the converged uh, hypercar LMDH uh, era. Um, we don't know, but I don't see that going away immediately. Uh, we said, I think last week, this year, 37 GTE cars, individual cars, will race at least once somewhere in the world. That would be in the WEC, in the Weather Tech Sports Car Championship at Le Mans or the European Le Mans Series. Uh, somebody pointed out to me today, in fact, that way over half of that total will be at Monza in July with the back-to-back um, efforts for the European Le Mans series and then the following week, the WEC, where I think they've got 14, no, it's 17, sorry, GTM cars. There is no shortage of GTM takers, and I don't see that being much different for at least a couple of years. It's going to be a very interesting moment, not only with the decision of the ACO on GT, but also the background reckoning as to where and how they've got to that decision. We'll get to know that uh, by the end of August. Uh, you can hear the, uh, what have we got there? It's a wood pigeon just outside my window at the moment, uh, which is open because it's a steamy hot day in the UK. A um, couple of questions uh, about the Glickenhaus 30-hour test. Damien Peachman asking, how did the test go? How do we think a non-hybrid LMH will fare against a hybrid LMH? Um, Daniel Summersgill also asked a question about uh, the Glickenhaus 30-hour test. Do I see a CG having a similar role to Pescarolo had? Uh, the plucky underdog with solid pace trying to upset and annoy the big works teams. So has to be good uh, for the sport, he says. And just checking through here. Um, about Glickenhaus. Uh, what good are notebooks? Believe the tyres, he says. In Glick's... Uh, 30-hour hypercar tests were a compromise for Michelin based on last season's tyres. How fast will they get a genuine development tyre done? Were Michelin arrogant with Glickenhaus? Will it be ready for Le Mans? Or will ACO have to balance the stint disadvantage? Really interesting stuff. Had a chat with a couple of people behind the team, a couple of people who were not a part of the team but were otherwise uh, at uh, the track. And indeed, on several occasions through the 30-hour test with Jim himself, and I think there were there were some really encouraging parts to it. Just one um, car stopping incident that was a broken power lead, which has been attended to. Not that they've uh, replaced the power lead; they have, but also upgraded that. But uh, I think what they were finding is what we were seeing at Spa, which is the current. It is a spec tire for hypercar this year. So the same tires on the Alpine. And I'm putting Toto to one side for a moment because they have a fundamentally different powertrain. But the Alpine X LMP1 car, of course, a high power rear wheel drive only car. And what we saw there was that in the second stint the Alpine drivers were not able to attack. There wasn't enough left there. I think what was happening at Aragon, to answer what another part of one of the questions there is, Michelin most certainly were there. And I think we did see the car uh, testing next year's hypercar rubber. I don't expect that we are going to see um, a development tyre, certainly before Le Mans. Uh, so they've got what they've got. And the concern appears to be about that second stint. What will we see for the two races prior to Le Mans and at Le Mans? Well, number one, the car needs to be reliable. It seems to have got that uh, that part of the code sorted. Um, 
it'll be interesting because with Portimao and Monza, completely different uh, tracks, you would have thought that Portimao would be less, would suit the LMP2 cars less. It's a very technical, tight, twisty circuit with a lot of gradient change. So the cars, the LMP2 cars, remember in WC running on the low downforce package, you would think with more weight and less power that might count against them. I think that's the track that maybe Glickenhaus is a bit worried about. Not quite sure how that plays out, but you know, it's as with. A number of these circuits, pretty high degradation on tyres. I think that's what Clickenhouse are worried about at Portimao. I think they think they'll be in better shape at uh, at Monza, but then that's a track with the low drag kit that might play back towards the P2 cars. I think it's this simple. Clickenhouse has got to be quicker than a P2 car through the whole stint, and I think that's what they're worried about in the second part of the stint. And they've got to be absolutely reliable because what we absolutely saw at uh, Spa is to comprehensively beat a P2, a, a hypercar has got to be fault-free. The United Autosports car with a fantastic run there took almost four hours to finally comprehensively put a lap on that car by the three leading uh, hypercars. I think this is going to be an interesting step forward. The politics stay on the table. Uh, you know, Jim's saying that he he was concerned with the, the tyres they're dealt at the moment, that uh, there may not be enough separation between LMP2 and the Le Mans hypercar uh, teams, that he agrees on that front with the Toyota guys. That will be a very unpopular point of view with the LMP2 teams for, for certain. And I think we're going to have some interesting WEC meetings to come in Portugal and in Italy. Uh, let's have a quick look. What else have we got here? Um, what tyres does the, the Alpine run, asked Damien Peachman. The answer is exactly the same tyres as the Clickenhouse will be running. And um, how will that non-hybrid LMH fare against the hybrid LMH? Weather is going to play a very substantial part of it. The tyres are going to be another substantial part of it. I think this is, again, you'll have heard me use this phrase before on the weekend sports cars. The great part of it right now, today, we don't know. And that for me is magic. Uh, you know, it's great not actually knowing what we're going to be presented with. I'm excited to see that car um, in the carbon for the first time rather than, um, you know, uh, a photograph. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that car just sits uh, out there, how it looks out on track, how it looks against the um, the very different uh, total solution to the LMH regulations uh, problem. Uh, I wish him well. Uh, I think everybody does and should. Uh, we need, I think, more challengers to come in here and have passion and the courage of their convictions to spend that time and that money. Uh, Daniel Summersgill says, when is the H24 car due to make its debut in the Michelin Le Mans Cup? And how, uh, when it does, how competitive do they expect it to be? Uh, pertinent question, because uh, if you've read Daily Sports Car today, uh, you'll note that the car is not on the Michelin Le Mans Cup uh, entry list, as it should have been for Paul Ricard. Uh, I've I not yet got to the bottom of it. I believe that car may have had some kind of shunting testing. It should have debuted at Barcelona, didn't was then predicted to be at Paul Ricard, isn't, or rather it will be, but will be out there testing. So the answer there, we'll know from testing times, 
uh, where it is in relation to its target car, which is a GT3 car. Why is a prototype on an LMP3 basis targeting GT3 times? Because there is a weight disadvantage against the LMP3 cars for the hybrid, for the hydrogen fuel cell uh, solution. This is the new car, remember, uh, seen earlier, seen at uh, Le Mans last year. Um, but uh, not yet seen lapping competitively. But uh, the aim is for that car, 150 kilos, by the way, lighter than the original uh, LMPHG, I think it was, um, the Adesh chassis car. But uh, that car is going to be aiming to put in competitive lap times against GT3. The car is now due to debut next month at Monza, and I hope it manages to do that. Another one from Daniel. He says, do you expect a different style of racing at Le Mans this year? In previous years, LMP1H is described as being a series of sprint races, but perhaps with more reliability concerns and the other classes being closer, will beating the race be more of an issue? I absolutely agree that that's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for a different style of race. I'm hoping that we're going to have to see, well, two or three things. Competition within the classes is going to be very interesting. The WC uh, teams and the LMS teams coming together in another stacked LMP2 battle. Uh, the WC teams, of course, by then will have a lot more experience with the low downforce kit than the LMS uh, contingent joining in. But then we should have Monza onwards, the five car uh, hypercar uh, grid with the two Toyotas, the two Glickenhaus, and the Alpine. And with a little less power, by the way, 20, uh, 20 kilowatts less power for the hypercars. But then they their setup should favour, as we said a little earlier, that Le Mans track um, against some of the WC tracks that have come before. I hope we see a very competitive one. I hope some of you are able to be there to see it. That certainly appears to be the plan at the moment from uh, the ACO and the French authorities. Um, and I hope we we get this new era albeit the first steps of this new era are underway with a bit of a bang i'm pretty sure we got news before then of more cars to come in 2023 and beyond and i'm pretty sure we'll be hearing some exciting news when we get to le mans as well so you know i hope we can all look towards the end of this pretty horrible period of time for the planet uh with a bit more rose-tinted spectacles and hope of better times to come and that Le Mans 24 hours can be a bit of a part of that. Rex Rutland says, what do you think the long-term plans are at Aston Martin? Is this the last iteration of vehicles using the Vantage platform? Will they come back to pro racing? I think it, it depends on whether and if someone steps up and says, I'll fund that. Uh, we've already seen this week, uh, the currently one-off appearance of an all pro crude car for the spa 24 hours that's a third car being added to garage 59 for the dane train marcus Sorensen and nikki team and ross gunn will join the dynamic duo the reigning world gt drivers champions of course um i think we might see more of that to come in the in the interim period it is the kind of brand where someone might see the value in simply opening a checkbook and saying, build those cars, whether or not that be in GT, whether or not that be in LMDH, I suspect not hypercar uh, LMH, but uh, might we see someone come forward to LMDH? I think we might. Am I saying that with any um, knowledge that there is a live program, a prospective program? Fundamentally not, but it is simply one of those brands that people can see the value 
in the the achievement being linked to a brand and adding value into the assets that come with that, that, that those being the cars themselves. It's exactly how the DPR9 project uh, ran, and for that matter, the Lola Aston Martin program, and for that matter, uh, for several years, the GTE uh, programs that those cars, owned by, for the most part, private individuals, end up being rather more valuable than they cost in the first place. John Schultzer um, almost the same kind of question but from a very different kind of point of view the days the likes of spiker and panels he says are now long gone have the rule makers neglected efforts such as the brabham bt62 no i think if brabham had come forward with a uh, program i think it would have been welcomed i think the reality is they didn't i think there are options there for challenger brands whether or not that's in the hypercar class or within gte the reality is those programs have not emerged does that mean that uh, the project costs were too expensive? It wouldn't be a stretch, would it, to think that if people were struggling prior to 2020 to find a budget to go racing, they're unlikely to be in a better position now. Might we see some of those smaller brands, those boutique brands coming forward in the years to come? I sincerely hope so. I think they add immeasurable uh, value to the entertainment for all of us. You mentioned Spiker, you mentioned Panos, Morgan, TVR, uh, the you know privately built Fords, the Durham Fords back in the day, and others. Um, I'd love to see uh, you know a project or two like that, like the Glickenhouse projects coming forward and adding a bit of spice here. For that matter, by Collis, get a you know a pretty rough time, including from me from time to time. But you know, I'd like to see them coming out and being competitive. I'd like to see that innovation coming through against a rule book that let's face it is written in such a way that if they can come forward with the initial investment, the rule book should, should um, guarantee that a team or a manufacturer that can make the performance window and can build that car reliably should be within a shout uh, for, you know, good results and to be competitive. Uh, let's have a quick look here. Uh, Ewan, SRA Smoking Puppy, how do you think the ACO can improve offering long-term resale value to future LMP2 and LMP3 cars? Hashtag me personally says, phase out of the 2011-2016 P2s in the Asia Le Mans series was almost perfect. And a similar model should have been employed for 2015-2019 uh, LMP3s in the Michelin Le Mans Cup. I think what the ACO would say is that the cost of upgrading the LMP3 cars was pretty marginal for the vast majority of teams. And for the most part, those teams had had several seasons of um, of value uh, out of those cars before being asked to reinvest in upgrading those cars or for the most part, buying new cars. Hear what you say. Um, there are the places those cars could race. Uh, once the technical passport, and I'll explain that in a moment, um, you know, has kind of expired, uh, you can go and race those cars in a variety of other race series um, around Europe and the world. Um, there is a market for them in national racing in a number of countries, uh, you know, in club racing, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, but uh, it would be an interesting question, wouldn't it, to find out how many of the chassis 
that have ever been built in LMP3 are still in everyday, in every week uh, use or full season use. And I think the answer is pretty remarkably high as far as the uh, the Duquesne, Normas and the uh, the Ligiers are concerned. But equally, it's very interesting to see, uh, I think, increased numbers of those older cars finding their way into kind of club racing. And um, my guess is helping as a stepping stone to take the step up to race internationally in Michelin Le Mans Cup, European Le Mans Series, IMSA Prototype Challenge, which is the last um, iteration of competition where those uh, older cars were uh, welcomed in an international series uh, in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, possibly for this year only, maybe for another year, uh, Asia Le Mans Series, etc. Um, so I hope they don't lose sight of how important the P2 and P3 uh, marketplace and in particular the investment they represent to the owners the teams that operate those cars that's where i think there's been a blind spot as we come into this new era is we need a plan for just how to encourage that uh, pyramid forward for the next crucial steps to get the teams in a position to be able to take advantage of the opportunities that are around in the next half a decade and beyond uh, Stasis Coco says, which of the following is more likely to happen? A Goodwin Pruitt Le Mans hypercar program, not very likely, or the McLaren LMDH LMH program? He says they should stop lying and reviewing. It's becoming more and more insulting. Don't agree. I'll be honest with you, Stasis. Um, I would agree that there's been too much said about the potential. Uh, I, I think I've said last week, maybe the week before, there is a live... Um, review underway at the moment with one of the chassis manufacturers on behalf of McLaren. That's not going to happen before 2024. There's a lot going on at the moment. We've talked about this with Ferrari in the past. We've certainly talked about it with McLaren in the past, trying to turn around in the case of McLaren, what had been a failing Formula One pro project. Certainly it's fair to say that Zach Brown and the team at Woking are doing a pretty good job of doing that right now. The more success they have, with that turning that super tanker around, the more likely it is, I think, that we'll see uh, that coming forward. There are multiple people, not just at McLaren, but well beyond that, involved in and in, invested in, literally invested in, seeing that happen. I would say right now, um, it is a possible, not a probable, but it's as close to probable as anybody out there with a realistic prospect of actually happening. I think McLaren should be pretty close to the list of likely to happen right now. Uh, let's have a quick look. Stuart Hart says, expanding on Bentley LMDH potentially being privately funded, how viable is it for small OEMs and constructors to get involved in this new generation of prototypes? Is LMDH basically walled off for major OEMs? The likes of Glickenhaus, Aurus, Bicolis, have to go LMH. Sort of yes and no. Um, I think the interesting moment will be just how competitive Jim Glickenhaus's project could be. Nothing to stop, for instance. Somebody could be Glickenhaus presenting a basic chassis for LMDH and offering that as an opportunity for others to build their own aerodynamic and, and powertrain package around in the same way that you can do that with an LMDH. There are lots of opportunities around. The key to it is going to be the will to do it and the budget to do it. So there are 
if someone wants to do it and they've got a reasonable budget to do it and you're then you're then talking into the tens of millions is what I would estimate to do it properly on a WEC scale, then there are options to go there. If you turned up at the ACO and said, hi there, I'm Challenger Brand X um, from name country uh, and we'd like to do this with this chassis supplier, uh, we don't quite fit the window. Do I think they're going to turn away that level of investment? I, I fundamentally don't. Um, but it may be that some of them see better opportunities with the LMH rule. It doesn't have to be as complicated as a Peugeot route, a Ferrari route, a Toyota route. It could be something that is a little bit raw, a bit, bit, bit more, a bit closer to the grandfathered Alpine or the Glickenhaus routes. Um, that is certainly a window of opportunity that is open there if they want to save some money. Remember what Jim's been saying all the way through this process, which is he, his project, he believes, is costing him fundamentally less than an LMDH otherwise would have been, and he believes there's a performance advantage in doing that. Um, so we'll see whether or not anybody comes out and uh, decides that the uh, the opportunities are on there. I hope they do. I think uh, that would get something of a following. Grigos Petrovic says, what has caused the changes in the SRT41 lineup? Not quite sure which changes you mean here, whether or not this is the fact that we've gone from the three um, disabled drivers to two. Uh, that's an internal team matter. I'm aware of some of the factors behind that, but um, we've got driver joining the team for the pre-Le Mans races. Francois Rio, I believe, is due to join the team uh, for Le Mans, Francois, the gentleman driver from the Ultimate Squad. That'll be Francois looking for an opportunity to race at Le Mans. There will be a commercial aspect to that as well. And SRT41 are not immune to the commercial pressures that are out there. So someone coming in and paying a chunk of money uh, to help that project forward will be interesting. And wish them well, by the way, uh, the team, for their second outing of the LMS this coming weekend at Paul Ricard. Uh, just rounding off here, uh, Dennis Prokniak says, do you know about the future GT3 regulations? Who is really the main decision maker when it comes to it, SRO or FIA? FIA are the, the body that makes those regulations. SRO, of course, are a major part of the delivery of GT3. They will have significant inputs into that rulemaking process, but it will be the FIA that makes that decision. We're already seeing the first of those cars beginning to emerge. Lots of double Evo cars coming. We've seen today, in fact, as I record this on Wednesday evening here in the UK, the uh, unveiling of the M4 GT3, BMW's new weapon um, that uh, we'll see in competition in customer hands next year. And the announcement that its first race will be later this month in the VLN um, at the Nürburgring. Uh, and I believe we're going to see at least one more brand new car to come reasonably soon. John Schultzer says, read an old interview with Stefan Rattel on DSC, referring to the minimum production numbers for GT3, said the place for GT race cars from boutique manufacturers will be GTE, not GT3. No pro program ever happened. GTE cars seemingly lost priority. They all came into play at a point where convergence in prototypes happened as well. And then we've got into a global pandemic and the financial meltdown that's happened for many businesses since then. Lots of businesses at the moment in kind of still lockdown survival mode. 
I think we give them a pass and we see how things actually pan out in the next couple of years as to just exactly what the plan is going to be from World Motorsport for those boutique and challenger brands, John. It's a reasonable question, but I think the window of opportunity there kind of sort of slammed in the face of a couple of outfits out there that were looking to see whether or not that might be part of their promotional opportunity. Damien Peachman asks, what's the future plan with Iron Dames and GT World Challenge Endurance Cup? I don't know. Um, there is an Iron Dames story uh, due to go on DSC. It's, uh, it should have been up the last couple of days, but I'll be pushing to get that one up and running. But uh, certainly that's one off for the moment at uh, the poor record 1,000 kilometres. I'm expecting the, we might see an opportunity for the team at the Spa 24 Hours. You would expect that might well be on the horizons for them. The interesting one for me is the comment from the uh, Iron Links team and their recent interview I did with Giacomo and Andrea Puccini. Um, did that one at Spa during the WEC weekend that uh, they they are at the moment reviewing the possibility that their GT3 efforts might end up um, in the USA. Uh, and with no decision made yet whether or not that would be in the SRO side of things or the IMSA side of things in GTD, do I expect that there might be an element there of looking for additional female talents in one of those cars? 100% do. I think it's been a big win for them in terms of the profile for the team, um, in terms of the opportunities offered for the girls that have been racing those cars, and they are on the lookout for... Uh, new talent to be able to bring to that program and show it off on an international or world scale. Uh, Damien asked as well, is there any news or update on SRO's replacement for the Suzuka 10 hours? The answer is no. Um, I don't see much of a prospect for the remainder of this season in the Asian marketplace for them or anybody else. We come into this uh, on the back of just this last week. Uh, all motorsports in China being cancelled for the foreseeable future. Um, it's not easy. Uh, any international uh, endeavour across Southeast Asia at the moment, principally because of the restrictions on people travelling back to their home market, lots and lots of hotel quarantine in place. That makes things fiercely expensive for anybody uh, going racing. Uh, my guess is, if anything was going to happen, It'll be somewhere in the Gulf region. I remain very surprised that others haven't followed in the Asian Le Mans series lead uh, with what they did with a quick fire season in 2021. And uh, we'll wait and see what the plans are with the new management team for the Asian Le Mans series about what plans there are for 2022. Final question comes from Ian Keyworth, uh, which is what are your thoughts ahead of the new DTM GT3 season? Any predictions? I wish them well. Um, I will admit to being intrigued, but not necessarily enthused by the um, the format. Uh, I think uh, having single driver GT3 races could be interesting. Um, it's interesting that there's all sorts of growing pains with will sponsor A turn up, will driver B be able to make it. Uh, there's certainly some doubts about at least one of the cars that is named um, on the entry list at the moment. Uh, that also concerns expressed by some drivers about the tyre supplier. But I think now uh, confirmed as Michelin uh, after some growing pains there too. So it, it's struggling, I think, at the moment to get through the, this is 
effectively a rapidly put together plan B for DTM. I hope they survive. It's a it's a series with a huge amount of heritage. They they need a plan moving forward. It needs to be better than the one they've got right now, I think is what it comes down to. Um, they have my support, and I hope everybody else's support in finding a pathway through it. But I think they need to take a step away from themselves, as a lot of people do in international sports, a variety of um, disciplines, and make a decision now that they probably need to be a little more humble in their expectations and in their approach to their competitors in the marketplace. And that by doing that, my guess is they will garner support rather than lose support by showing, as they clearly are, that they're struggling in this marketplace right now to pull this together. To to put the budgets together to make this work, it needs to be very special. I hope they're going to manage that in terms of the spectacle that you, the fans, see, that we see on TV, but most particularly that people see in the paddock of those race meetings. Because without factory support, direct factory supports, I'm sincerely hoping that some of the people who've invested heavily in going to that format aren't disappointed by that aspect of the show. That is probably my principal concern. You know, what is the paddock? Is 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 that the step forward that people operating in, you know, already well-established GT3 formats are going to see a big step forward to justify the investment they're making there? I hope the answer to that is yes. If it isn't, I think they will struggle through year one into year two. Uh, we will see from that. So apologies. The last part of this has been a bit of a solo effort. Uh, we took a good while, though, to get through uh, well over an hour with, in fact, about an hour and a half with Ollie Gavin. Delighted we could bring that to you. Uh, I know Marshall would agree with me that's something we wanted to do uh, to mark uh, the end of Ollie's professional race driving career. And I hope you think that was well worthwhile. Uh, for me, then, it's good night for now. Um, before an ELMS weekend this weekend uh, and then into the WEC in Portimao next week where I'm hoping um, as we have the run into that race we can get so we can sports cars together with Marshall back on track as we come up to the two hour mark for this edition of the weekend sports cars I'll say thank you again to Cooper Tires. Thank you very much to the Justice Brothers. It was great to see their vinyl on the side of Ilio Castro Neves' car uh, at the Indy 500. And thanks to TorontoMotorsport.com and plenty of pictures on social media from the the uh, the loot that they were doling out from their uh, merchandise trailer at uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, he's Marshall Pruitt lying down in the cupboard. The other guy, the tall one, still in the race suit. Uh, he's been Oliver Gavin. I've been Graham Goodwin. This has been the Week in Sports Cars, part of the Marshall Pruitt podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>